happy Friday and welcome back to Closing Closing In. In. This is our third episode. Last episode, Unclog Your Toilets, went up two Fridays ago and we talked about Dennis Nielsen, the UK's Jeffrey Dahmer. And two weeks before that was our first episode, Eat Your Pizza Crusts. So if you haven't watched our previous episodes, I suggest you go pause this episode, watch our first two, and then come back. And the mic is back in Kelsey's hands to tell us our third story today. Um, Just as a reminder, I have no idea what story I'm about to hear today, and I can't wait to get into it, Kelsey. So why don't you take it away? Okay, so today we're going to talk about Dennis Rader, also known as the BTK Strangler, which stands for Bind, Torture, and Kill. Oof. Yeah, so it starts off pretty spicy. Mm. Um, This story begins on January 15th in 1974 in East Wichita. Uh, Rader severed the phone lines and entered Joseph and Julio Otero's home, a former co-worker of his. Rader proceeded to strangle, suffocate, and hang not only the two homeowners, but as well as their two young children, leaving the three older siblings to discover the bodies when they arrived home from school later that day. Wow, we're really just starting off heavy. Getting right into it. So he cuts the phone lines and goes in. He is a Mm -hmm. man with a plan. Yeah. Okay. And it was a coworker of his. So it was someone that he knew. Whether there was motive there, not sure. Okay. But that's where it starts. A few months later, that same year, on April 4th, Catherine Bright, another employee at the same company, returned home with her brother Kevin to find Raider, who was waiting for them with a gun. Kevin somehow survived having a gunshot wound to the head, but he's unable to save his sister, who Raider had stabbed three times in the abdomen. So he's just sitting in their house when they got there. Yeah, with a gun. But then he chose to use a knife on the woman that he knew. Okay. So it was a personal attack. that way. That same year, in October, a man allegedly confessed to killing the Oteros with two of his friends. So that was the family of four. After this happens, an editor at the Wichita Eagle received a strange phone call telling him to go get a mechanical engineering book at the Wichita Public Library. The editor informed police of this, and when police went, they found the book, and inside was a letter wedged, which read, Those three dude you have in custody are just talking to get publicity. The code words for me will be, Bind them, torture them, kill them. BTK. You see, he added again. They will be on the next victim. Along with including details, which were not yet disclosed to the public at that time, regarding the Otero killings, the letter is filled with misspellings and grammatical errors, along with a distinct sexually suggestive signature. So he tends to do a lot of grammatical errors in the messages that he sends to media and stuff. Ew! I already know that this guy is a sicko because... You would think if you killed someone, you would be happy that other people went to jail for it and not, like, out yourself, but he probably just wants the attention. Yeah, he didn't want the case to be closed, essentially. He wanted it to still be open and probably not for him to get found. He just wanted it to still be, like, in media and stuff so that it wasn't solved. 
So a couple years later, March 17th, 1977, Radar knocks on a door and a five-year-old child opens it. Radar then barricades the five-year-old child who opened the door and his two siblings in the bathroom before strangling their mother, Shirley Vance. The children eventually escape and provide police with a vague description of the intruder. Oh my god. So, at least this time he didn't kill the kids. Because he did at the previous house. Later that year, December 8th, after binding and strangling 25-year-old Nancy Fox, Raider heads to a payphone to point police to his handiwork. To the 911 operator, he says, You will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing. So he gave them the exact address. He wanted her to be found, essentially. On January 31st, 1978, the Wichita Eagle received an index card imprinted with a poem that began with, Shirley Locks, Shirley Locks, Will Thou Be Mine? Unaware of the connection to Shirley Vian, and believing it to just be a Valentine's Day note, the mail clerk forwarded the card to the paper's classified department. So that card was never publish in media or anything right away essentially because they didn't realize it was a hint 10 days later on february 10th 1978 as his poem didn't make the news raider sends a more direct message to the wichita tv channel k-a-k-e tv how many people do i have to kill before i get my name in the paper or some national attention he wrote he then reeled off a list of suggested nicknames, including the BTK Strangler, the Wichita Hangman, and the Asphyxiator. So he's sending ideas to a news company of names to call him. Exactly. For because him he wants killing to make people. national news. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Following his message to KAKE TV, Wichita Police Chief Richard Lemunyan called a news conference to reveal, for the first time, the presence of the BTK Strangler in the area. He warned, We have no reason but to believe the individual has the capability to kill again. Okay. And they called him the BTK Strangler in this news release? Yes, he called him the BTK Strangler. Okay. Okay. On April 28th, 1979, Raider lies in wait for Anna Williams, but he gives up and leaves when the 63-year-old woman took too long to return home. Less than two months later, she learns of her brush with death when she received several of her personal items by mail, along with a poem titled, Oh Anna, Why Didn't You Appear? Oh my god. How freaked out would you be? I would think I would actually go insane. I'd move. And I would also, at the same time, think that I'm just a superior human and that I need to be out shopping and doing errands more. All the time and never come home. Yeah. Wow. For sure. Um, Okay, August 14th, 1979. Police decide to release that 911 phone call that Raider had made to report Nancy Fox's homicide in hopes that someone would possibly recognize the voice. And tips did come pouring in from listeners who thought they recognized the voice, but nothing stuck. It was nothing concrete that they could really follow up with. I feel like if the police in our town came out with a 911 call recording, I would be sitting in my bed going through every single person I know and trying to make sense of matching a voice to a person just so that I could, like, help solve it. 
A hundred percent. I would be going out in public to like grocery stores oh my and like God. talking to everyone and being like, hmm, how would you say this sentence? <laughs> he looks suspicious. <laughs> and then the address that the guy said in the call or something. <laughs> so there was a lot of calls, but it's just nothing that was the right one. Uh, sometime in 1984, so this was about five years after they released the phone call. Okay. Um, the police chief established a task force that was solemnly devoted to the BTK crimes, and they nicknamed them the Ghostbusters, after the popular Bill Murray movie. Uh, the task force included a young officer named Ken Landwer. On April 27, 1985, Maureen Hedge was taken from her home just down the street from Raider's house. She was a neighbor of his. She is then found dead by strangulation eight days later, and police failed to connect her murder to BTK at that time. On September 16, 1986, this is over a year after Maureen Hedge's murder, Bill Wurgel returned home for lunch to find his two-year-old son sitting by himself and his wife Vicky dead in their bedroom. In the absence of other credible evidence, the husband became the primary suspect in her death. Oh, no. Yeah. Always, you always have to start there, so. Yeah, they're always, like, the first suspect. But, like, how hard would that be to, one, have your spouse die, two, have to see your kids sitting near their dead body, and then three, to be accused of it? To be blamed of it, yeah, for sure. On January 19th, 1991, BTK threw a cinder block through a sliding door at the home of retiree Dolores Davis, strangled her to death, and left her body by a bridge. This would be his last killing, as he seemingly is preoccupied by his day-to-day duties as a city park compliance officer and father of two. (gasps) So he seizes his killing, and BTK drops off the map. This is January 19th, 1991. So this was like 10, 20 years. 74 to 91. Okay. So like 15. I can't do math that fast, but like somewhere up there. 16. 16. Almost 20, baby. Yeah. (laughs) Anyways. (laughs) Average. On January 2004, 30 years after the first known BTK killing, the Oteros, the Wichita Eagle prints an article recalling the terror BTK wielded in the 1970s and suggesting that he had faded from memory after so many years of not being in the public eye. Raider later admits that this article spurred him to revive his deadly alter ego. Shut up. So he was, like, out of commission... 30 years later, some guy publishes an article about how he's forgotten and he takes this as a sign to get back in the game. Yeah. Basically. Oof. Or at least to let the world know that he's still alive and he's living his life and he's still not caught. Okay. Okay, so he doesn't he's... kill again, but he wants to like I don't know. Okay. <laughs> We're not there yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> On March 19, 2004, the Wichita Eagle received an envelope from a Bill Thomas Kilman, BTK, containing a copy of Vicki Wurgel's missing driver's license, photos of her body, and BTK's distinctive signature, 
a chilling message that links her unsolved murder to BTK and declares the Wichita Terror to be very much alive. Oh, no. I just think of, like, that poor town that they probably were living in terror for, like, the 10 years, that 17 years that it was going on. Mm -hmm. And then to think it's over. And then again, it's like, nope, I'm still here. Like, yeah. oh my god, and haven't just we for been him, through enough? Yeah, and like, he could have just kept quiet. Like, he was living his life, he was raising his kids, so what was the point of him sending another letter just to be like, just kidding, like, I'm still here. Exactly, like, you'd think if you were a serial killer, like, the whole point of serial killing is to keep doing it, and you can't do that if you get caught, so why... Why would you not be happy that the case goes cold or that they arrest other people? Yeah. Then it makes you wonder and it brings into question, like, are they really bragging or are they secretly like they want to get caught and they want to be like punished for the crimes that they committed because they feel guilty that they lived like such a long life being free? Like, which one is it? You're a better person than me because I just (laughs) think, like I said in the last episode, I think a whole half of the equation is one the killing but then being able to sit in front of like a detective and talk about how they did it and like see people's reactions I feel like they would almost get off on that just as much as they do or close enough to the actual killing but yeah you're so wholesome (laughs) I doubt he feels guilty though (laughs) probably not not this guy maybe other people just not this one yeah on May 5th of 2004 BTK's next outreach was a letter mailed to KAKE-TV, which included a phony ID, chapter titles for a BTK biography, and a find-the-word letter grid spelling out clues like prowl and fantasies. Ew. And an interesting fact about this was that after like, he had been captured, like at this point in the story, they don't know who he is, but after he had been captured, Puzzle Sleuth later realized that the letters... R-A-D-E-R, Raider, were grouped around the numbers 6220, which was the author's street address. No way! hmm So it was literally so he, right in front of them. He literally put his name in the puzzle that he sent to a TV station. Oh my god. Yeah. On December 13th, 2005, after BTK left more messages in various public locations, a man walking through Wichita's Murdoch Park stumbled on a garbage bag which contained Nancy Fox's driver's license and a Barbie doll with a hood over its head and arms tied behind its back. On January 25th, 2005, acting on instructions from a postcard mailed to KEKE-TV, police found a cereal box on a road outside Wichita containing a graphic description of BTK's first murders and another doll fashioned in a death position. However, it was a section of the postcard which inquired as to whether his package was found at the local Home Depot that proved to be more interesting to authorities. Okay. So he's sending them things, but then he's also like, hey, you guys didn't find my other letter I wrote you guys. So, like, let's go. Like, you're slacking. He's, like, taunting them. My God. So after poking around the store, investigators learned that one employee had found a cereal box in the bed of his pickup truck. 
A search of his trash produces the box and a message asking if BTK could communicate via a computer floppy disk without being traced. If so, the police are instructed to run a newspaper ad with the message, Rex, it will be okay. So, okay, let me just get this straight. He's asking them, if I send you information or just like send you a message on a floppy disk, am I going to get caught? Basically, yeah. And he thinks that if he could get caught, they would say, oh, yeah, you'll get caught. Don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, what are they going to run if they want to tell him the truth? Rex, it will not be okay. Like, (laughs) They're obviously not going to say that. This one gets me because I know the whole kind of point of our podcast is like the fatal flaw what did they do that got them caught and this guy has done so many things he's called after he killed someone with the address Mm -hmm. he sent letters he's like hey did you find my cereal box like any of these could have gotten him caught so i feel like it is just a classic move if this guy gets caught with this freaking floppy disk i i can't so (laughs) <laughs> oh no <laughs> on january 28th 2005 after an undercover detective makes arrangements with the wichita eagle the paper runs a classified ad that read rex it will be okay contact me p.o box first four reference numbers at 67202 six days later btk confirms his receipt of the message through another postcard sent to KAKE. Oh no, please no. So this guy hid his last name in a crossword puzzle and didn't get caught, but thinks nope. the police are just saying, like, oh yeah. On February 16th, 2005, a computer floppy disk arrived by mail and is relayed to cyber cop Randy Stone who uncovered BTK's message about checking an index card for more information, along with the hidden metadata that revealed the disk to have been used by a Dennis at Christ Lutheran Church and Park City Library. No! So he knows where, what account kind of thing, and the name. So he used his name, his real name. At the library? I don't know. It was the metadata. So it all depends on like what he used to put on the floppy disk. The metadata behind the scenes that Dennis obviously couldn't see had Dennis in the background, Christ Lutheran Church, and Park City Library. So it just had that information within it. This might be a stupid question, but is a floppy disk like a CD? It's like what came before. <laughs> Like a DVD? It's like the square ones. Oh, like with the tapey thingies. No, no. there's no tape. Go like, Google is it. Is it the icon that, like, when you click save, is that a floppy disk? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so within seconds and with an internet search for Christ Lutheran Church, it revealed the name of its president, Dennis Rader. He was a godly man. He was, in fact. Already armed with DNA evidence, carefully preserved by our trusty team, the Ghostbusters, Lieutenant Landwer and his team learned that Raider's daughter, Carrie, 
had been in the hospital for a pap smear. The hospital soon turned over a sample of her DNA, which matched that of BTK. That's actually very smart. Very interesting way to catch somebody. And also, I do not consent to my pap smear being used as DNA to solve a crime. Are they allowed to do that? I guess if they have a warrant or something. There's nothing really more that you can do about it. But they obviously had, like, reasons to pursue this one lead like they didn't just like ask anybody that had had a pop smear for the dna evidence but still feels like a little bit of a violation of privacy there literally so it's the pop smear that sealed the deal here which one there wouldn't have been the pop smear without the floppy disk it's like the chicken or the egg question which comes first exactly (laughs) On February 25th, 2005, heading home from the office to have lunch with his wife, Raider is pulled over by the line of police cars trailing him and taken into custody. He confessed after being confronted with the DNA evidence and enjoyed what he believed to be a bonding session with law enforcement agents. Although he is plainly irritated that Landwer lied to him about the security of communications via the floppy disk. Oh, my god <laughs> he really believed them and he's really upset that police lied to him like how stupid can someone be that could be offensive to stupid people <laughs> this guy's even dumber than that. like but i'm sorry because he this might sound a little bit bad but in my true crime brain i love the fact that he sent like crosswords and like notes like I eat that stuff up. But yeah. how can you be so smart to like hide your last name and your street address in a crossword puzzle and then be like, hey guys, if I send you a floppy disk, um, can you catch me that way? And then believe that they will tell you the truth. Okay. Like, hello. <laughs> don't compliment him like that there. <laughs> no, I don't. I do not support. But like my fellow true crime peeps will be like Loki obsessed with like. Yeah. And drama of it all. Who knows if that was like just a coincidence of like how the words ended up. True. For like people found that after the fact, which is insane. That's crazy. mm -hmm. Okay. BTK's arrest is announced at Wichita City Hall the following day, drawing applause from the audience gathered. On June 27th, 2005, catching prosecutors off guard by pleading guilty to 10 counts of first degree murder. Radar provided the court with explicit details on how he selected, stalked, and finally killed each of his victims. His lawyer later noted that they went with the guilty plea due to overwhelming evidence against his client and the lack of firm legal footing on which to enter an insanity plea. So why did he do it? I don't think there really is like a reason. He just really liked it. He truly enjoyed doing that. He gave, like, reason for how he picked the people, but I think it was just, like, an impulse for him to want to do that. Okay. On August 18th, 2005, the two-day sentencing hearing featured testimony from investigators who described Brader's documentation of his torture-fueled sexual fantasies, emotional pleas from the victim's families, and an apology from the convicted killer, who expressed hope that the families will one day forgive him. 
Ew. Ew. Will not. the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. Having committed his murders before Kansas reintroduced the death penalty in 1994, the BTK killer received a sentence of 10 consecutive life terms in prison for a minimum of 175 years without the possibility of parole. That is so a he's slay. not getting out. Definitely That's a not good leaving. One. On January Wait, 29th... Before you continue, mm-hmm. I have a question for you. Okay. Do you agree with the death penalty? Oh, God. I don't think so. Okay. I think me neither. I feel like it's too far of an extent. Yeah. Like, there's one thing to play judge and jury, but to play executioner is a whole other ball game. Like, if, if they're really, really bad, put them in solitary confinement, make them go absolutely crazy. But to kill them is really next level to me. We become them. True. An eye for an eye and the whole world is blind. Exactly. But I feel like I might feel differently if it happened to someone I know and Mm -hmm. or when they're like particularly heinous crimes like with children or like, I don't know. It's hard. It's always tough, but then like it's even harder to say like, oh, we can't do the death penalty. But if it's in these scenarios, then yeah. True. Then because it's then like, it's like who draws the moral line. Exactly. So yeah, that's you're crazy. either all for or all not. And I feel like it's just better to be not. True. Agreed. Because then if you're all for it, then like somebody could get executed for like possession of drugs, which is not the same as murdering children or things like that. True. True. Back to the story. Sorry. On January 29th, 2019, Raider's daughter. Carrie Rawson published her book, A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Hope, Love, and Overcoming. The memoir described her relationship with Raider growing up and how she overcame the horror of it discovering his crimes. Because how, like, how, how can you even continue your life when you find out that your parent has a been murderer. a murderer? Yeah, that would be like, Almost similar to how I feel when you told me about the girl who later found out that she escaped death because she was out of her home and he didn't want to wait anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just that, like, knowing that stuff was going on that you were completely oblivious to. And then how do you deal with that in the present? Yeah. On July 21st, 2023. Shut up. (laughs) You with the recent cases here. Like, I'm getting the heebie-jeebies. So if you'd recall our first podcast episode, Eat Your Pizza Crust, yes, which we talked about Rex Hooerman, the Gilgo Beach murderer. Where are you going with this, Kelsey? In a letter to Fox News Digital, Raider compared himself to Gilgo Beach murder suspect Rex Hooerman, calling him a clone of myself based on the similarity of their cases. Hewerman was arrested and charged with six counts of murder in connection to the deaths of three women, if you recall. Oh. And also, when he submitted that uh, note in that cereal box there that wasn't found, where he was asking if the floppy disk was okay or not, he told the police to run an ad in the paper. Oh, shit. Rex, it will be okay. 
So and did he already know? Before Rex got caught? Yes, it was. Yeah. Holy shit. Wait, wait, it wait. It was in 2005, wait. so it was like well over almost 20 years before Rex was caught. Wait, I am actually speechless right now. Were Allegedly, they like, there's no connection. Were they geographically the close? Ooh, I don't know where East Wichita is. Let me Google. And Gilgo Beach? It is a whole 21-hour drive. Nowhere okay, close. Far away. It's just, it's strange. Why would you use that name? And then why would you later say that it's a clone of him? Like, that's just a very strange connection. Was he maybe inspired by him? And then through the dark web he actually found out who it was before rex was outed like i don't know this is actually crazy Mm -hmm. wow i actually feel like wires in my brain are like exploding because that is insane if if he knew Mm -hmm. damn what if there's like a whole social media platform for like killers I mean, there is. Yeah, for I was sure. about to say there is like the dark web. So yeah, a hundred percent. Where they probably like post questions and they say like, "Oh, where's the best place to get rid of a body?" In blah blah blah, and then someone answers. Like, crazy. there's definitely something somewhere out there, and there's also probably police officers that are undercover reading 100%. all of those messages. I'm so. gonna take a guesstimate and say 85% of the people on dark web are undercover police officers. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I just want to say a quick note. I'm going to name just all of the victims really quickly just to commemorate them. There was Joseph Otero, his wife Julie, their son Joseph and daughter Josephine, Catherine Bright and her surviving brother Kevin Bright, Shirley Ruth Vian Ralford, Nancy Fox, Maureen Wallace Hedge, Vicki Lynn Wurgel, and Dolores Airline Johnson Davis. And that was the end of Dennis Rader's story. We're now going to segue into probably my favorite segment of our show, which is for Gracie to now guess what Dennis Rader looks like. I give it to me. What do you think he looks like? You know what's hard? In I love true crime, but I never look up the people, right? So the only mm-hmm. two people that I really know what they look like. Well, I guess I know what Ted Bunny looks like. I know what Jeffrey Dahmer looks like. I know what Rex Huberman looks like, and I know what Dennis Nelson looks like. So in my brain, he's like a mosh of all of those people. Okay. But, Let's just go with, like, facial features. Like, how's his hair? How's the beard situation? Is there glasses? No glasses? Like, Okay, I'm going to say that he doesn't have a beard. I'm thinking that because he knows Rex Huerman, I'm imagining them, like, in the same same realm of people like I think that he just looks like a dad who goes to church and has a wife and has children but like maybe he has like serial killer glasses or something that's what he looks like in my head okay okay I'm gonna look him up now (laughs) and I'm scared okay three two one oh no he looks like a priest literally yeah he looks like my high school principal or like yes 
that's what I was thinking. Like, more like a principal or like a weird neighbor. Literally. Like the creepy yeah. neighbor that no one likes. Yeah, with the mustache. Definitely Google Dennis Rader. Yeah. If your guesses were as good as Gracie's. He's definitely, if I could sum it up after seeing him, he's giving me creepy neighbor who is also a principal. And maybe stalks people. Yeah, like he's got the signature bald spot. Mm-hmm. And the mustache and the glasses. Creepy. So yeah. I was right on the glasses. Yeah. I think he pretty much fits like what you would expect a serial killer to look like. Yeah. It's pretty spot on. Besides, like, I don't think that he looks like scary. Like, I don't think he looks terrifying. I th- but he's like the basic what like a suburban dad that's also a serial killer on the side looks like yeah i agree i think the word you said best was creepy like he just looks creepy mm-hmm. yeah ew that was a story we started off strong and i thought this guy was gonna be like a mastermind but he's a floppy disc he's a floppy disc dummy floppy disc dummy who got caught officially through a pap smear. Through a pap smear. What a way to go out. That was the final nail in the coffin. His daughter's pap smear. I think the three things that we can take away from today's episode is that floppy disks do in fact have metadata. Do not trust your police officer when you are a serial killer. And three... DNA can and will be taken from your pap smear and used against your father in court of law. So definitely start by deleting your metadata. Delete your metadata. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's it for our third episode. I can't believe we're already on episode three. As always, I'm going to be annoying and tell you to go follow us on Instagram at closinginpod. Follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review. It will really help us out. And stay tuned for our next episode. We have to go delete our metadata. Bye! Bye. I love that we wave every single time.